Hello, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, whenever you are in fact finding the time to listen to this latest episode of my bi-weekly podcast for the next few weeks, Soundtracking with me, Edith Bowman. Thank you so much for choosing to join me. I really appreciate it and it's lovely to have you along with us. I said bi-weekly because we have been slightly inundated with guests that we just can't say no to because... It's a fascinating and exciting time with regards to, I mean, not everything should be put on awards season, but a lot of people make themselves more available around this time. So it's lovely. Um, so we're really excited about the number of episodes that we have for you over the next couple of weeks, which is just really celebrating, doing no more than celebrating and having a conversation about film and music, which is what we try and do every week on this podcast. Thank you if you are choosing to join us for the first time. Welcome along for the ride. Welcome back if you're a regular listener. It's been a really lovely flurry of responses from people, which has been so great. So thank you. We really do appreciate not just your time and listening to us, but taking the time to get in touch with us. If you do, if you want to do that, by the way, it's just info at edithbowman.com. Drop me an email about whatever it is that you fancy. Now, we've got a bonus episode for you today as two friends of the podcast return separately, I should say to discuss their work together on the extraordinary Babylon. Now, you might have heard me say this before, but when I go in to watch films and do interviews and stuff, I really don't read much with regards to reviews and things like that. To be honest, I don't really pay attention to reviews because I kind of want to go in and experience films with a blank canvas, with knowing as little as is possible. But what's been quite hard, I think, with... Babylon. It's been really interesting seeing the kind of, and you can't help sometimes but see kind of headlines on social media and stuff like this. But if there's something I could say to you, it's like, just don't take notice of any of it. Go in and get on board for the ride of this film. Um, Damien Chazelle, if you have seen any of his previous films, be that everything from La La Land to Whiplash, then you'll know that sound and music and texture are incredibly important to him. Babylon kind of took my breath away. I feel, felt like I held my breath for the entire thing because there was so much to look at and be enjoyed and to be kind of shocked at and surprised by and entertained by. So I'm really thrilled to have Damien and Justin on the podcast. Director Damien Chazelle, of course, and composer Justin Horowitz. And they've worked their magic once again. Their relationship, if nothing else, is, is pretty special. Brings to life a tale of decadence, depravity and outrageous excess in 1920s Hollywood. Uh, now, what we're going to do is share the interview with Justin first, uh, as that goes into quite a lot of detail about the music. And then we'll get an overview from Damien about the score and the movie as a whole. So let's get into it with Justin's cue, Jub Jub.
Hey, Edith. Hey, Justin, how are you? Good, how are you doing? I'm really, really good, thanks. It's so great to see you. Yeah, good to see you again. Oh my God, the movie is amazing. Oh, good, thank oh. you. I'm slightly addicted to it. I kind of can't stop watching it. It's kind You've of... seen it more than once? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can, You have to. You it's have a very to. rich movie. Yeah, every time I see it, I, I mean, I've obviously seen it or parts of it many, many times, but I'm always seeing new things. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's that kind of, that first viewing is you just go in and you let yourself be entertained by it. And then yeah. going back in, you're kind of looking for things and you're kind of, yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. I'm so excited uh, to get to chat to you about it. Thank, thank you. you. No, thank you for having me. Man, well, when you watch it, it's funny because I watched it again today and I was just sort of thinking uh, ahead of chatting to you, you must have had to do so much, prepare so much music, like have it there, done and ready to go for filming or, or way before filming started, really. Yeah, so there was a whole pre-record phase on this, which we've done before. You yeah. know, anytime there's music in the movie, in the scenes of the movie, like Whiplash, like La La Land, like mm -hmm. actually the movie we did before Whiplash that nobody's ever heard of, um, you have to pre-record that music <laughs> so that you have it on set to play. So yeah. we've 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 been through that, and and this was you know the probably the biggest most thorough version of, of pre-records we were in the studio for a full week and then mixing those pre-records for a full month before wow. we got to the shoot and and of course I'd been writing the music and working with Damien for a long time before that so we, we went into the shoot with some really pretty advanced pre-records yeah. Of course, later, you know, once the film is shot, once the film is edited, I'm redoing many things and re restructuring as, as the picture takes shape. But we did go into the shoot with, um, you know, a lot of music recorded and mixed. I always feel like at times the music's a bit like a narrator. It's so great. And it does this great thing where in a slightly Nelly stance, it's kind of straddling the 20s, but it's then straddling a contemporary world. So it's sort of kind of got its feet in both camps. Totally. I appreciate that. You know, that's how it feels to you, because that's exactly what we were trying to accomplish, which is to not take people out of the 20s, to let people be in the 20s, but to be in Damien's very specific, very unique take on the 20s, which is a wild, unhinged, insane world where, yeah, the the music is... A lot more contemporary, I think, a lot more driving, a lot more aggressive than what we think of as 1920s jazz. But still, at least in the cases of the pieces that are on screen or sort of on screen, um, at least the instrumentation is that of a 20s jazz band, more or less, yeah. so that we could feel like we're at these parties. But the actual nature of the music is a lot more, you know, modern dance music or a lot more rock and roll.
I am. Um, I was watching back a a Q and A last night that that Damien had done, and and someone was talking to him about the party scene at the you know near the start. Where do you start with kind of writing something like that and stuff? And it was so funny because he was like, you know, I don't really like parties. I'm not. I'm not really a party kind of guy. And you're kind of like, wow, you clearly have the most amazing imagination. If that's the party you come up with when you don't like parties, it's so rich and it tells you so much within every every kind of pixel of that those scenes in that party it's so clever and the way it stops and starts and comes in and out and the music's very much part of that it's like waves almost in a way yeah and um you know just talking about all the other elements like you say it's very rich there's so much in every shot in the foreground and the background i see things every time i see this movie or any part of the movie i see things that i never saw before so the the design the production design the costumes everything the way it's shot it's all so so rich um when it comes to the music yeah um a lot of those sequences um are are you know driven by music which is why we had to make the music early one thing that i was trying to wrap my head around too is how the music would function how it would be mixed i think it's mixed in kind of a, an interesting way where mm-hmm. it's some of the sometimes the pieces start at a party but then are sort of become like score they start to become mixed like score they might start on a bandstand but then we cut away to a different part of the house and the music is even louder than when we were downstairs. So now we're upstairs and we're, you know, there's maybe a little scene, but then the music surges back and, and throws you into the next scene and it, and it, it swells up in ways, you know, not to get like too technical, but I guess this is like a score, you know, podcast, like just the reverb and, and the way it's mixed when it comes to reverb, like we're in, we're in the ballroom. So there's kind of like a ballroom reverb, but yeah. then we might like go outside the house and normally you would expect the music to be very like filtered and uh, you know only the lows coming through the walls of the house and there would be a lot of reverb. And sometimes we do that, but then other times the music might, we might be outside the house and then the music swells up and it's just like, it's, it's like score, it's like loud and in your face and it just like throws you into another scene. So that was really, you know, Damien's vision his sensibility when it came to like how to treat the music and when to think of it as in the scene and when to think of it as uh, something else or ambiguous in terms of where it is in, you know, in where it's living in the movie. near the beginning where Nellie and uh, Manny meet for the first time sort of outside the house while the party's going on. It sounds like a completely different bit of score than what's going on in the party. And it's the most beautiful. It's so low in the mix sort of thing, but it's there and you feel it. I think that that's the thing is you're kind of almost, it's almost like you're trying to eavesdrop in on something. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful piece. And it works so well because then you kind of almost crash back into that party. It's so clever. Thank you. 
Thank you. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that, you know, coming off of our talking about what's in the scene and what's not in the scene, because one of my one of my concerns when I was doing that scene was how do we make sure people understand this is a score cue? Mm-hmm. Um, this is not coming from within the house, because I, th- I, th- I felt like it would hit us emotionally more if we just uh, not thinking of it consciously. Hopefully people aren't thinking of these things consciously. Hopefully they're just like in the, mo- they're just watching the movie. But yeah. if it would hit, hit people as a score cue, rather than people think that we're hearing a tune from within the house in yeah. the case of that walk and talk when Mel- Nanny and M- Manny and Nelly first meet. So again, it came down to sort of the mix where it was positioned, how it was in the, on the screen, but also just the instrumentation, giving it an instrumentation that is, not really reasonable to assume is is on the bandstand because in in the house it's a band it's a band it's a horn section it's a piano a bass a drums guitar and that Manny Nelly cue the first time it and then every time it comes back but we introduce it in that scene it's really a different instrumentation it's three pianos all blended oh, wow. together the first piano is just like a beautiful Steinway, just a really pretty piano, a very mellow, like an exceptionally mellow Steinway, very warm piano. Mm. The second piano is a slightly out of tune spinet piano. So like a small, small piano with tacks in the hammers, something Mm -hmm. people do, you know, they put tacks in the hammers to give it this twang. And like I said, a little bit out of tune. And then the third piano is a very, very out of tune upright. So when you mix the three pianos together, you get the sweetness of that nice Steinway, and then you get different amounts of out of tune from the other two wow. pianos. You have the sweet and you have the sour, and it had this kind of like fragile and broken quality that felt like their relationship. Yeah, the characters. Yeah, exactly. It's the characters. It's that relationship. And we keep bringing that cue back with the same instrumentation with the three pianos. I, I change a few things about how the pianos are positioned, but those same three pianos... Some of the other versions of that cue have little circus sounds in it to kind of, you know, get at what a kooky (laughs) circus of a relationship this is. So that's that's their theme. And like I said, I kind of hoped that it would anytime that theme would come, there would be no ambiguity over whether it was within a scene or whether it was score that that just really kind of belongs to those characters in that that storyline. I love how it's. um I mean, I, I I kind of went down as well. Like, I it made me want to know so much more about the era as well, and learn and kind of watch and read as much as I can, sort of thing. Because, you know, it's not a documentary, so it's a feature film. It's Damien and his wonderful team, of which are included, brilliant creative minds. But things like that kind of live orchestration that's going on whilst things are being filmed, you know, and and how that that was kind of what happened, really, you know, while these 
And I love that whole kind of out in the desert bit where there's almost, it feels like there's about 20 films being filmed at the same time sort of thing. And, and how the karma just moves around and you've got a little jazz trio that are playing outside where Nelly's filming and then you kind of sweep around and you almost like just don't even realise it's there, but it's like a 40-piece orchestra on the edge of a cliff at one point. It's just amazing. What's the reality of what's happening musically whilst that's are they playing is it what's the preparation for that as well yeah those were wild wild shoot days <laughs> first of all we were in the desert like you said it's like 100 degrees the wind was blowing we were all just like inhaling dust i was literally coughing up like not to get too gross but i was this brown <laughs> like i was fitting out like brown cactus pieces um the next few days, but no, it was, um, musically, technically it was a big challenge. So again, like you said, there are a bunch of, um, that kinescope sequence, Nelly shows up, Margot Robbie's character shows up for the first day at work. And she's just like deer in the headlights trying to take it all in. And there are all these little sets. And because it was the silent era, well, two things, one, they could, they could have all these sets next to each other because they weren't recording sound. So, mm-hmm. You didn't have to worry about that set being too loud and you could have them right next to each other, all the sets. And secondly, like you like you got at in that era, they had mood music on the set to kind of give it a pace and give it a mood, which is funny because they weren't recording sound. And ironically, in the era where there was no sound, that's when they actually had like the most music on set in some <laughs> ways. But anyway, you have all these sets next to each other and each of them has their own mood music their own little ensemble so we had to create that was part of the pre-record process we had to create all those um all those pieces so the first set there's somebody on a djembe then the second set there's a ragtime piano then you have an arhu that that bowed chinese instrument the single Mm -hmm. string then you have some circus music then you have some organ music. And then finally you come around the corner and you have this uh, baritone sax trio, which becomes a really important score cue later. And, and, I'll, and I'll talk about that. But anyway, you have all these little pieces of music. So we we recorded all of those in the studio before. Wow. These are all pre-records. And then getting it all synced up on set so that the players could be in sync with those individual. So normally when you shoot, like I said, you pre-record and then you shoot on set. You have one piece of music. So you either, depending on what what dialogue is in the scene, you either blast it on set and the musicians can mime to it, or you put it in an earwig and the musicians can mime to it. But here we had like all of these pieces of music. So there was no dialogue in the scene, in this part of the scene. So we could blast it on set, but we had to... We had to give each music its own moment as the camera moved past through this whole scene. Each of those music things, you know, had to come to the forefront. So, you know, our mix and onset music team had to very carefully like mix up and down these pieces of music as the camera was passing the little sets. And we also had to hide speakers on set so that... The music, I think the musicians had earwigs too, but we also had speakers on set. I think we did both. But anyway, we had to hide the speakers. But then there was also the problem of like the distance of the speaker. I remember there was one thing where like the speaker was hidden far enough away that actually the delay of the sound was an issue. So by the time the sound got to the player for that player didn't have an earwig, I think. 
I might be remembering the misremembering the earwig situation, but I know we had a distance problem where it's like the speaker was hidden so far away that actually the sound was out of sync by the time it got to the player. So you had to compensate for that. But anyway, amazing. Like I think it was a steady cam shot. And then the, the mixers like mixing up and down these pieces of music to track where the camera was. And then all these musicians had to be, you know, they had to know the music and they had to be on it and they had to be in sync with it. And then you have, so many this is just the music side of it then damien and lena's the cinematographer and all the other people in the scene and all the action and everything had to work with the camera movement so it was it was like a whole a whole day just to get that shot i think Maybe two days. Well, two days at that location, at least one day on that shot. It was, it was, it was a, it was a process. And then the other, the other scene, it was a different day, a different part of the same area. We were out in like Piru, California. Yeah. It was a different place, but nearby, I think, when we had the whole orchestra, the, the full orchestra on the battlefield set. That was just another hundred plus degree day, sun, you know, coming down on us. You had like something like a thousand extras or that battle you know uh soldiers whatever whatever they are and the you know fighting pyrotechnics explosions horses all of that then you had us as an orchestra and that was what we were also blasting that was no earwigs we were just blasting Blasting. uh night on bald mountain and trying to be in sync with it and again there was a big camera shot big crane shot that comes up over the battlefield comes over i was like pretending to conduct I was, you know, <laughs> faking it out there and uh, we were, yeah, it was, it was another hard, grueling day. It's such a great scene. It's one of many, many brilliant. And it 
it's got such a physical response when you're watching it kind of thing. The music almost kind of this sort of crescendo nature of that as well, just kind of it lifts you up as well. And then that kind of bit where the kiss and then Margot's cry and it's kind of all that stuff. It's just, oh, I loved it so much. I'm going to go back a bit if that's all right. But when David first sort of told you about the idea for this film, how did he sell it to you? What was the line? What was How did he describe it to you? Let's see. He told me about it when he was writing the script and it was about a year before I actually got the script. This was yeah. late, late 2018. He told me I had no idea what he was working on. We had just put out First Man and I, I had no idea what we were doing next. And so he told me he was writing it. And it was about a year later, fall of 19, when I got the script. But anyway, when he first talked to me about it, told me it was 1920s, told me it was going to be a really, really wild movie. Um, there was going to be a lot of parties, but there was going to be a lot of other kinds of sequences and that there would just be a lot of music. He was like, get ready. There's going to be a lot of music in this movie. <laughs> I was like, all right. It kind of almost feels like he's sort of taken everything that you guys have done prior to this and kind of gone, I want all of this in one movie. Yeah, that's an interesting, that's an interesting take on it. I think there's probably some truth to that. And I did feel that way, you know, just the kinds of music. There's music that... Uh, I was drawing on some of, you know, my whiplash experience when it comes to that really frenetic jazz, not the same style, you know, not that kind of more 60s, 70s style of big band that's in whiplash, but still a very frenetic jazz with a lot of, you know, Latin grooves and things. You know that vibe in in some ways made it made its way into Babylon. There's definitely sweet, romantic, bittersweet, melancholy music that um, I was drawing on. Some of you know the the vibes I was I was I was using in La La Land. Mm -hmm. There's um yeah big sweeping orchestral music. There's there's also just stuff that's like I'd never had to play around with before. Like there's a there's a Greek sort of a Greek folk tune that we do at one point when Manny walks into the garden where he's going to meet Jack McKay, the, mm -hmm. the Tobey Maguire character. And we're in a whole new world and it has to be kind yeah. of unsettling.
So we have this, you know, weird Greek folk tune. And then we have this right after that, there's this Hawaiian orchestra piece with slide guitars and strings. this weird you know very creepy set piece and there's like strange almost like gregorian vocal drones and and stuff so many many colors that i've never used before But like we've done on other scores, we're always drawing from the, the themes that we've, we've planted in the movie earlier. So all of yeah. those pieces I just mentioned, you know, the Greek folk thing, we're calling back uh, the track that on the album is called Miss Idaho from the from the first party. We're calling back that theme and I've twisted it, disguised it, done it, you know, kind of as this Greek folk thing. Then for the next, the Hawaiian orchestra thing, we're calling back the the tango that um, that uh, Lady Faye dances to at the pool party called Oriental Yours that we also use as the like string as a piano trio, string trio for a cue called, you know, in the morning. It's on the album called Morning. It's kind of when yeah. everybody's waking up and you're sort of seeing how they're all living. That cue, the tango, and then this later Hawaiian orchestra thing are all like, you know, kind of twisted up versions of the same tune. So we're like calling back an earlier melody.
with a really creepy vocal thing <laughs> later. Really creepy. Like, very so creepy. creepy. <laughs> yeah, and there's this, so like there are all these vocals, and then there's this pitched gong thing that comes in like to kind of amp up the tension halfway through and those pitched gongs are doing their calling back like a sort of twisted version of the voodoo mama riff which was nelly's big dance at that party yeah where she did you know she's like crowd surfs and all of that so good we're calling back the you know those those pitched gongs are doing like a version of that very disguised and probably not something that that people are going to notice consciously but i love to do those things in case they you know uh have some kind of unconscious uh meaning for people at that point because you know if you had to sort of think why nelly is nelly's kind of the stakes here if this plan doesn't work nelly's going to be totally screwed so why not call back if we can a theme that was first introduced and kind of represents Nelly at this point. with how to you know how to seed these melodies and yeah, then yeah. continue to 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 uh to call them back very often in ways that are disguised but to continue to bring them back over and over again uh as we take people on a journey and as we sort of use them in ways to, to dramatically you know score whatever the movie needs to be at that point it's so clever because Music has that ability, doesn't it, where it's an unconscious thing sometimes, your reaction to it in terms of it's so, so brilliant to think that you kind of like with that first piece of music that I talked about, their theme and the fact that that's kind of, you know, I, I, I recognized that and I had a connection with it and I will connect with it at the different points throughout the film without even realizing almost in a way because I've had that physical response to it. And it's yeah. not something you can control, is it? It's amazing as a, as a viewer, as someone who's enjoying the film. But that's the brilliant thing, and the the depth and the layers that you go to is to to kind of do that through the music in a way. You're telling us so much story without us even realizing. Thank you, thank you. I pre- I appreciate that. Yeah, we love to, you know, have every piece of music mean something. To never have music that's just, you know, that's just there as as wallpaper to have it always mean mean something connect to some character some idea some story and then like i said twist it to be to work dramatically for what it needs to be but to always have some kind of meaning there we we love doing that and you know really admire scores that um that have done that um with that sort of economy of theme were there were there any reference points you're in terms of obviously singing in the rain is is featured in, in, in the film. And weirdly, it was on TV here in the UK at the weekend. It was kind of like, oh, amazing. So I hadn't watched it in in years. And it was such a joy to sit and watch that film again. You know, I've watched it so many times over in my lifetime. But um, but were there reference points in terms of 
music in school, both in terms of things that were inspiring or you wanted to avoid or, you know, just in terms of, I don't know, any sort yeah. of references at all? La Dolce Vita was always a big reference point. That was one of the things Damien and I talked about early on. Mm. The way that, again, Nina Rota has a, f- a handful of melodies and they keep coming back. So playing a lot with um, diegetic and non-diegetic, meaning like what is what is within like the scene and what is yeah. not within the scene, what is just within the like the magic movie world as score. And yeah. there's a lot of ambiguity and there's a lot of back and forth and there's a lot of like, you know, you'll have it in that movie, you'll have a tune that's played by, you know, some musicians on set, but then later that same tune will come back and it's just score or there's music and you're not quite sure. Is it score? Is it within the scene? And we do the same thing. Like I mentioned, we have music that sometimes it's clearly on screen, but then we cut away and the music is still carrying us through a montage or through other scenes. So at that point it becomes score or we have music that is, introduced us on screen and later it's score or we have music that you can't even tell you're not even really sure like it's there's a party there or there's a party in the background but you're not sure and it's it's mixed very loud so it's like doesn't seem like it's within the scene but we are so there's a lot of ambiguity and 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 uh uh La Dolce Vita was a big was a big inspiration when it comes to how to play with like the the world of the score and the not score and what like where the music lives in the movie. That was a yeah. big inspiration. Let's see, other big, other big inspirations. I mean, just when it comes to the music itself, we talked a lot about rock and roll. We talked yeah. a lot about yeah. the feelings of rock and roll, the feelings and the feelings of modern dance music. I would say those two genres of music were the biggest inspirations. We knew we wanted to avoid stuff that sounded like the 20s. Yeah. Because we, we've heard it. We've heard 20s music. And it's at least the music that was recorded is kind of tame, very tame uh, for the kind of movie Damien was making. There was an interesting idea that Damien had early early on. I mean, he'd done so much research on this and. He told me how, like, the music that we think of as 1920s music, you know, because it's been recorded, because it's been immortalized through recordings, is really only, like, a small sliver of what was actually being played in the 20s. Yeah. And that if you read the oral histories and, and accounts and diaries and whatnot, whatnot of the time, there's there are accounts of music that are very different and quite a bit more interesting and there was a much bigger and more vibrant music scene going on at the time than what was actually recorded because recording was very new and very few people had access to it. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, only a certain kind of music got recorded, but there were there was an underground music scene and there were clubs and there were parties and there was all sorts of stuff going on. And if you read accounts of this, there was a lot of music that um, we we had to we could try to imagine what it was because we've never heard it. So we had fun, like imagining what it could have been, what it could have felt like. In some cases, definitely cheating. In some cases, definitely doing things with the instruments that we know weren't done, like the the sort of dance hi hats. Like that's that's a modern dance thing that we were kind of bringing in to sort of sneak in to give us that kind of coked up party feel. <laughs> yeah. Most likely, they were not doing that even in the underground clubs. But we imagined that just the style of playing, the sort of the wailing on the horns and all of that. That seemed like something that was plausible at the time yeah. that we we definitely don't. That's not the 20s music that was recorded that we think of, but definitely could have been and probably was done, you know, with the musicians who were just like going for it um, at some of these at some of these clubs and whatnot. <laughs> philosophies like how do we imagine the music world that could have been but also sneak in elements that are you know decidedly more modern but that we can sneak in in a way that won't take us out won't take us out of the out of the 20s or at least you know we can live in that world and we can get the feeling we want that damien wanted to give us i don't know i'm kind of rambling but my point it's is i think we're <laughs> You're not rambling think, at think, all it's so fascinating i think what the point i was trying to make is um just when it comes to music, we were being very inspired by um, more modern things like rock and roll, the sort of driving, aggressive feeling of rock and roll, again, transposed into a jazz band very often. But that feeling of muscular riff based writing, you know, very like like that Voodoo Mama, th- you know, riff, yeah. just very heavy driving riffs and also some elements like pounding kick drums and dance hi hats and risers using horns to create risers, the sort of risers you might have from in electronic music synthesizers but doing that with horns yeah so drawing on all of those influences horn wise as well um the character is sydney palmer who's played by um Jovan. giovanna depo yeah uh, i mean is does he is he playing because he's amazing yeah he, he did such a great job wow. he's not actually playing the, the trumpet he's not actually making a sound but he is perfectly in sync with the tracks. So we we pre-recorded the tracks, like I said. And then uh, Jovan worked with a trumpet teacher, uh, Dan Fornero, who's one of like the great session players in L.A. He worked with Jovan for a long time and just, yeah, learning the fingering and 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 learning how to be so realistic good. and how, how it would look. And, and Jovan does so many touches that are so great that are kind of like, not plain per se, but are still like 
embodying a character, cre- creating a character, creating a trumpet character, like the way he kind of like loosens up his fingers. So like he'll play <laughs> the notes, but then in between when there's a, like a rest in the music, he'll kind of like, he'll kind of twitch his fingers and flutter them to kind of like loosen them up in a way that a trumpeter would do, you know? And he'll also go from, from actually like playing it to he'll, when, when he's squealing, he'll like use his palm in a way that I think is, I think some players do. And it's just like, it's a touch that for that character, for the Sydney character, it's just something Sydney does. And yeah, it's really cool to see. So, so yeah, Jovan worked really, really hard and, and Obviously, he's like phenomenal actor in so many of these other scenes. And in these in these scenes, like I was saying, he he's both like miming these trumpet parts as well as acting in, in terms of creating like creating a trumpet character out of all the out of out of the music. And it's it's really an impressive thing to see. the entire night as well talking about Margot and Diego I think that that's just a an amazing connection and chemistry on screen and individually and together and just I think their performances are fantastic in this and she's a real she's a rock star in this she's just amazing and it. it's kind of like it's so great listen I've kept you for ages and I'm I'm so appreciative of your time and um, I've just I promised my I've got uh, my nine-year-old's called Spike and um he's a drummer He's just at grade three, and um, he fell he fell in love with uh, uh, Miles Teller in Top Gun, the new Top Gun film, and he's yeah. obsessed with him. And I was like, oh, my God, wait till you see Whiplash. You're too young to watch it at the minute, but wait till you see it. And so I showed him the end scene, just the end scene. He yeah. will come, he'll come home from school every day, and his drum room actually is just up behind me, and he goes up and he puts it on in his iPad with his headphones on, and he tries to play along. Wow. Every day he's practicing with this and it's like he's he's just connected to something in that performance in that in the music. And it's like nothing he's getting taught at school. You know, he's getting taught like yeah. knock on wood and stuff at school. Right. Seven Nation Army and all that kind of stuff. But he's um yeah, that's it's, so um, cool. Was he drawn to jazz before um you no, showed him that was he already? No, no, wow. no, it's it's like uh yeah, it's kind of it's made him hungry. It's really awesome wow. to see. Yeah, it's well cool. that's I mean, that's one thing that uh I, I love that Damien's done, which is introduce people to genres of music that they may not have been drawn to before. Like people I've heard from so many people who are like, like, I hate musicals. I've never liked musicals, but I like <laughs> La La Land or like I've never been into jazz. Like jazz is that. Eh, but, you know, they got into Whiplash. They got into La La Land. Hopefully they're seeing Babylon. And Damien's done such a great job of, of like taking music, genres of music that people may be 
didn't weren't thinking of weren't fans of or actively disliked and then making it palatable and 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 pulling them in and hopefully it becomes like a gateway to going to jazz clubs going to see live music going to see other musicals film musicals stage musicals anything and hopefully it like opens people up to new things yeah amazing and congratulations on the golden globe thank you Thank you. So great. So great. There'll be many more on the shelf as well. Um, I'm sure over the next couple of months. And um, Justin, thank you for your time and huge congratulations um on the film. It's it's very rare you kind of go into the cinema and feel the way you feel when you came out after watching Babylon. It's a it's a special and brilliant film. Thank you. I appreciate that. It was great talking with you, Edith. You too. Take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Justin scored to Babylon, that's Miss Idaho, rounding off the first part of this special Babylon episode with the composer. Now it's Damien's turn and here's a cue called See You Back in LA. Damien, thank you so much for the experience of this film. I I love it even more every time I watch the film again. Oh, I thanks. Get something more from it. I kind of want to live in it in a weird. I mean, yeah. that might sound weird, but it's just it means you have a sick mind. But thank you. <laughs> well, so do I. <laughs> well, clearly, I was so amazed to hear you say actually before we dive into music in the film was that you you're not really a you know parties are not really your thing Um, and the party you've created in this film is absolutely extraordinary the layers to it are just I mean I couldn't even imagine trying to get to the kind of core of it because there's just so much going on it's fantastic what an imagination thank you (laughs) right I mean it's it's uh yeah Uh, you know a a lot of it was um it's hard to take credit for much of it at all as sort of the product of pure imagination. There was a lot of fodder to draw from in just, you know, uh, even just written accounts of some of the parties of this era yeah. or parties of other eras, you know. But but something about this era in Hollywood, there was something about that juxtaposition I found so fascinating between <laughs> the kind of opulent sort of uh, old world trappings of 1920s, you know, uh, high society. Mm. And then the utter 
bestial, base kind of, um, you know, tawdry sort of behavior that would sort of uh, uh, go on in those hallowed halls, you know? Yeah. It's like uh, just, again, coming down to, you know, bodily fluids in a room like that, you know? It's just, it's, it's sort of that, that, that contrast between the, the high and the low. To me, that was the period. That was what I wanted to try to capture. Um, you know, Fellini does a little bit of that, yeah. obviously, sort of the master of that. Um, so that was my main kind of, that was the baton that I sort of tried to, tried to uh, as best I could. It's hard to work in his shadow, but tried to take. And um, um, yeah, so his example and the examples of some of the real shenanigans that people were up to, or at least said they were up to, yeah. you never quite know. Hollywood is famous for its tall tales uh, of this era, provided me with plenty of uh, fuel. When you were writing the film, did you kind of know music-wise, because, you know, you play, you're a musician, did you know kind of how important or where music was placed? Because it's such an important character mm. in this film. Yeah, I, I sort of wrote in the script kind of, you know, we hear music here or, you know, uh, both for on-screen stuff because, of course, it winds up playing a big part in the characters, yeah. uh, you know, lives. You have people like Lady Feiju and Sydney who are music perf you know, performers of music and provide the soundtracks to some of the uh, some of these parties. Um, and, uh, you know, then, then there would also be things where I kind of knew, okay, we're going to need some sort of propulsive tract, you know, of, of score to kind of carry us through this. So I would sort of put indications like that, you know, just in the script. And then Justin and I, you know, once he started working on it, we kind of went through the script in detail and tried to sort of go beyond just those indications I'd put and figure out in between them where else might music want to be. Uh, where would it want, it want to be diegetic? Where would it want to be non-diegetic? Where would it want to sort of bridge, between, you know, between the two? Uh, and then, yeah, then he started working. It's so interesting because there's so much going on in the film music-wise, but the start is so quiet when the film starts, you know, with the, when, when we arrive at that in the desert. Yeah, I wanted to just hear the, uh, the, the cicadas. And yeah. And the, yeah, yeah, and the wind and a tiny bit of ruffle in the, in, in, in the trees, the freshly planted palm trees that <laughs> yeah. don't belong there. It's a <laughs> fucking desert. Uh, and they, uh, you know, every piece of vegetation in L.A. pretty much is uh, alien to L.A. It was all imported. So it's this fake city. You know, everything about L.A. Is sort of was built from scratch. You know, it's the desert, and they sort of turn it into this mix of, you know, old Europe and Xanadu. And, you know, you turn, and, you know, one minute you're in a Tudor English cottage, and the next you're in Versailles, and the next you're in the Alhambra, and then over there is, you know, I don't know, Casablanca, and over there is old Shanghai. I mean, it's just the, the, the hodgepodge of Los Angeles, not just the movie sets they built, but sort of how it then informed how the whole city kind of grew. Uh, production designers would take time off from movies to design houses, and mm -hmm. they would look like sets. And <laughs> so that whole thing. Um, sorry, I go. I know I'm going on a tangent, no, but but I think it's it's um, trying to sort of get at the root of that. That this was sort of a fake, kind of dreamed up mirage of a place that was put where a desert once was. And so at the beginning of the movie, I wanted to feel that desert and just feel the emptiness of that. You can almost kind of feel the heat. And feel the heat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You yeah. definitely do. You absolutely do. Yeah, well, Linus, yeah, the DP, Lena Sandgren, who's brilliant, he, he uh, maybe because he comes from Sweden, where they don't know what this thing called heat is, I think. <laughs> so he, he really wanted to capture craves that as it. well. Yeah, he craves it. So he, 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 he had this great idea that we talked about to overexpose the film when we were outside, yeah. so that what happens is, is the sun, uh, everything that the sun hits blows out. So a sky that might be blue turns... The blue goes white. The sand that might have a kind of gold to it goes sort of pale beige. Everything kind of winds up getting blown out. 
and it gives you the effect that you're sort of squinting as you look at it, you know? <laughs> that, that feeling that I think you often get in LA, the light is so hard, it's so much harder than anywhere in Europe, for instance, uh, you know, where, where I think of the light as, even in the Mediterranean, it's somewhat softer in quality. California light has a hardness to it and a mm -hmm. harshness to it and a glare to it. And so trying to f capture that feeling of the sun almost attacking you, um, uh, you know, it was sort of uh, dictated some of, yeah, how he exposed the film, what lenses we used, and sort of, yeah, how we shot it. I mean, I could talk to you all day about all the different kind of crafts of this film because this collaboration between all your wonderful departments is extraordinary. And talking to Justin, it was so great to get to, to kind of pick the musical part with him a bit. And I mean, he's the only weak link on the, on the you know, but, but <laughs> you, 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 you always again? have one. <laughs> <laughs> But I was well, the first thing that I talked to him about. She was that brilliant scene where where um, uh, Manny and Nelly meet for the first time out, outside mm. of the party, and we have this very subtle piece of score in the background mm. that's kind of, that's the start of their theme, really, the yeah. first introduction to their theme. And it really resonated with me, and it really kind of connected with me. It was almost like taking a breath from the, being in the party. Mm -hmm. right? It was a, a jumping off point for him then talking about this beautiful journey that the so many bits of the score have throughout the film mm. in terms of how they're kind of mashed up and mm. added to and cut, you know, it's it's wonderful to hear that there's a thread through from themes that you hear in one point to other parts of the film as well, as well as all this extraordinary music that's happening from the bands and the orchestras mm. that we see as well. Yeah, it's it's you know we sort of knew it'd be a sprawling movie with all these different characters and all the it even goes through different tones. So the music had to unify it. Yeah. Otherwise, it would really risk being completely incoherent. You know, we talked a lot about, for instance, what Nino Rota did with some of the Fellini pictures, like Dolce Vita, talking yeah. about a long sprawling movie, hmm. where you you hear the same uh, fragments of melodies uh, reprised throughout, but always in different kind of. Guises, and they take on a sort of emotional baggage as as the uh, as they gain resonance, you know, as as the movie unfolds. And then sometimes it'd be this sort of backwards thing, like like with the, that Manny Nelly theme as they're walking. I remember that was one of the last. You know, again, I say like so much of the music was written uh, before we yeah. shot, but that we hadn't figured out, we hadn't cracked. I, I we didn't know what it was. He, uh, we knew what it wanted to feel like, but we did lots of iterations. I remember, you know, just I would sort of screen full cuts of the film for myself and watch it with different kinds of music for their, let's call it their theme yeah. melody. And nothing was really working. And then finally, it sort of occurred to us that this, this, this kind of very simple tune that he had written for Nelly for her first day on set when she's dancing and kind of becoming a star on set. It's a sort of propulsive, uh, uh, sort of fun, very simple uh, tune that was very fun and fast and yeah. upbeat. He sort of realized if we slowed that down dramatically, it suddenly had this melancholy to it. It had this sweet, kind of bittersweet, sort of uh, broken circus kind of feeling to it. And that was the revelation, was literally just taking that from another part of the movie, slowing it down and putting it in different instruments behind them and their walk and suddenly it came alive, suddenly it was clear, that's their melody, that's their theme. Mm -hmm. Something that had already been introduced as sort of related to her. Uh, became became theirs and became the sort of love theme of the movie. So that's uh, things like that, you know, where where you you sort of find associations that sometimes you plan, sometimes you surprise even you. With regards to that scene, you know, where it's 
you're in the desert and all the different sets are there and all these different films are being shot and I think my jaw was on the floor for that kind of holy sweeping round and there's the oh. there's the jazz trio and then there's the when you see up on the hill and the enormous orchestra that's kind of playing along sort of thing just in terms of 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 writing something like that what's the inspiration between that particular section of the film in terms of it's clearly a love of film from you you know in terms of wanting to in a way within your film celebrate the kind of chaos and the the kind of just the, the constant kind of work ethic that's going on there mm. as well in terms of let's we've got to get it out we've got to get in spike is phenomenal mm, yeah. but just <clears throat> it's a bit of a weird question but just you know writing in the in, in inspiration behind that part of the film i just was so interested to find out from you a bit about that well it was just all the th it was just a collection again of all the things i found remarkable about movie making in that era yeah. you know that are just sort of um a little mind-boggling to us today. The idea of sets, multiple sets, right alongside each other, um, uh, with the sound of one overlapping with the sound of another. So you're working in a completely cacophonous environment. You know that would feel like utter chaos, but it gave a certain energy to silent filmmaking. That's the irony of silent filmmaking: is that it was way louder than sound filmmaking, <laughs> um, for obvious reasons. Uh, the shooting out in the out in the open air. You know, sort of. Uh, not being on kind of the traditional studio lots, but having these sort of makeshift studio lots built out of the, again, out of the desert, feeling the dust, feeling the elements, mm. the sweat of it. The fact that movie making in those days was mostly manual labor. It wasn't this kind of tech, there was a central technology of the movie camera, but beyond that, I mean, people were using tools that were as old as theater in some, in some regards, and there was just um, this kind of a physicality to it that maybe uh, some element of which remains. Uh, a lot of movie making still mm -hmm. is manual labor, but you, it's a little less um, in your face now than, than, than it was then. Um, so, you know, it, it felt like making a movie about movies, but where everyone sort of would kind of be dressed or look like, you know, they were extras in Giant or There Will Be Blood or, or you know, <laughs> uh, something like that, or coming out of the coal mines or something. It felt like this sort of almost turn of the century uh, manual labor really grueling, physical, sweat-inducing labor, you know, to make this thing that then, you know, becomes very uh, ephemeral and intellectual, whatever, this thing that we call art, you know, it's such an interesting sort of dichotomy. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, orchestras on set playing live music, people dying in the making of movies, extras being rounded up just by, you know, cars patrolling Skid Row and picking up homeless people and offering them bagged lunches and paying them in no other way. Uh, you know, extras revolting and getting rounded up by someone riding on horseback with a gun, threatening to kill them. I mean, all of that was, uh, I didn't make any of that up. That's all pulled from the records of just wow. how some of these movies were made. So, wow. Yeah. I laughed yeah. so much at parts of the film where yeah. you meant to, clearly, <laughs> hopefully. But that, but there's some, just some of the lines and some of the, you know, like, uh, Okay, no tits, kind of all that kind of stuff. You know, it's kind of, it's just. Well, again, the vulgarity of it, the, it was unapologetic, yeah. I guess. It was sort of the movie. They didn't have time for niceties, you know? <laughs> I mean, these people were shooting multiple movies a week sometimes. I mean, it was just, a, it was a factory uh, in a way that, again, it's sort of harder to comprehend for, you know, us kind of more, more pretentious filmmakers today. And the, so. and the sound, the first. The time they record sound in the studio. Uh, yeah, well, that too was all pulled from everything from the camera box to the, to the, uh, to the heat to the sort of re repetition of it all. To yeah, I mean, it was all that was all pulled from, pulled from people's nightmare reminiscences of, of when sound came in because it really was the end of the party. You know, it yeah. was it was uh, 
the end of freedom as they knew it. Uh, movie making completely changed overnight. I love that cue that comes in when the um, after they finished filming and they're in the other party and someone goes asks about Nellie and she's with the ice sculpture. That's all I'll say. Mm. And then and they go. And they go, where's that? And they go, Nellie, oh yeah. And they sort of look across and it's a great sort of pan around to her. And they go, we're really fond of her. And then this music cue just kind of pounds in. And it's that's it's it's almost like being at a party with someone that you've lost for a second and they just kind of, come on, we gotta go this way. <laughs> it's such a the music has such a physical reaction to me anyway, watching oh, it and cool, stuff. Yeah. And I wonder if that was the intent as well. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to give the audience a physical experience, you know, because I, I want to make sure the movie didn't feel like so many period films often do, distant from them, yeah. where it just feels like you're looking through glass. So it needed to feel like you're at the party, you're at the club, uh, you know, when that beat comes in, you're feeling it in your gut, you want to dance, you're sort of tapping your foot without mm -hmm. even, you know, consciously knowing you're doing so. Um, uh, yeah, that was part of the the challenge because again, it is a period film. It's three hours, you know. So you, you you've got the obstacles in your way to kind of keep an audience engaged, and and the music became one of the best tools we had to sort of overcome those 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 barriers. You know, there's always a choice of do you use do you write music? Do you how much is diegetic, or do you use existing music? Mm. But was the reason to not use, I mean, I didn't really notice much existing music in there at all, apart well, from the... There's very little, yeah. there's some, but yeah, very little. But really, that you wanted to almost kind of create your own, because the film does straddle kind of almost the 20s, but contemporaneous as well in terms yeah. of musicality. Yeah. Was that the kind of reason why it all... Yeah, we it would have been easy to kind of, if there's a band playing, stick and have them play something from that era, but... Totally. No, but we've seen that before, mm. you know, and so it, that, that felt kind of like a... Uh, that wasn't an option yeah. for us. And, and Justin, I think, also was really excited by the opportunity to kind of create, the, uh, sort of create a, a new soundscape, something yeah. that w would, you know, forever just be associated with this movie, um, for better or worse. <laughs> and so, you know, he kind of, uh, he took that on and, and um, I'm sure he spoke about this more, more eloquently than, than I can, but, the, you know, this sort of trying to uh, use the ingredients that existed at the time mm. and use the basic DNA of, of 20s music, but uh, kind of recombine things, take them in a direction, and play them with more muscularity that, uh, yeah, does sort of modernize it. It was sort of trying to be modern without being anachronistic was mm -hmm. kind of a little bit the, the, uh, the trick, the dance, I'd say. And within that, you've got Margot Robbie, who is just, oh my God, she's just amazing in this film. I mean, she's amazing anyway, but you kind of think, oh yeah, no, I know what Margot can do. And then you see her in this film, and you're going, holy shit, <laughs> it's kind of just extraordinary. She's, you can't take your eyes off her. And yeah. she's just so many different, that's a really loud fire engine yeah, out there. Yeah. Someone's coming it's to, appropriate to her raid character. this party. Yeah, yeah. totally. The movement and that dance, hmm. that dance scene as well. Do you mind talking a little bit about the kind of creation of that? Because I loved hearing you talk at one of the Q&As that you did just about, you were kind of blown away by her work ethic as well in terms hmm. of, you know, well, nobody runs on a film set. And you're like, <laughs> Marvel yeah. does. Yeah. She has the most physically demanding role in the movie. And so it's, you know, and you could argue emotionally demanding as well, hmm. but it's just sort of, I think it's hard to imagine many roles that would be more physically demanding than than this one, and and uh, 
So you need someone who has a kind of hunger and energy and, and endurance, you know, resilience kind of uh, to them that, that, um, that equips them for that challenge. And she somehow made it look easy. I mean, she would just, I think of scenes like the snake fight where she was out in very cold temperatures, uh, you know, sort of desert night uh, temperatures uh, where it really drops for three nights in a row battling this prosthetic snake and it just, you know, uh, screaming her lungs out. She had, she basically got a throat infection uh, by the end of, uh, end of that. She was sick for about a week, um, you know, uh, but never once complained. I mean, she's just, she's like, uh, she's a force of nature the way hmm. her character is a force of nature. The difference is that she's also lovely to work with and reliable <laughs> and not, you know, drugged out of her mind all the time. So, yeah, that's the, you know, that's the perfect combo. I loved hearing her talk about her spirit animals as well. The octopus yeah, and the so honey funny. badger. The honey badger. Yeah. yeah. When, when she told me that shortly before shooting, I was like, okay, this is either going to be brilliant or I'm going to just look at you and not know what the hell is going on. And uh, it was brilliant. And Diego as well, what a find. Yeah. Thank you for introducing him to us. He's absolutely oh, beautiful. Oh, well, no, I have to uh, credit him. I mean, he, he's, uh, he was out there just waiting to, <laughs> you know, we were lucky to stumble upon him. And, and, um, and uh, especially kind of seeing his work with Margot and his work with Brad and, you know, just kind of, you know, he yeah. sort of, he like, uh, you know, he was the newbie on set among everyone and just sort of, he had never been on a uh, on an American film set before. He had never been to Los Angeles, period. He had never worked in English. He'd, you know, uh, had only done a few films before, nothing of this size. So uh, it just, you know, wow, he's I think a, a lot of actors could have, yeah, could have, I think, just sort of choked. Um, he, for him, it was the opposite. And maybe it did have something to do with, yeah, how personal the role ultimately mm. wound up being, how much it overlaps with his own his own life maybe to a certain extent, but uh, it also has to do with him being a phenomenally gifted actor. Yeah, I mean that, that scene where he, at the end where he's in the cinema, and just the, the journey that he goes on <coughs> through his facial expressions as he's watching Singing in the Rain is... Um, yeah, it's not easy for an actor to sort of tell that kind of story with just your face. You don't even have the benefit of dialogue. You yeah. don't have the benefit of anyone to answer off of you. You don't have the benefit of movement, mm. uh, body language. Uh, you have none of that. It's just the face. And so you get something, there's something very pure about that. I think of like, uh, you know, Rene Falconetti and Passion Joan of Arc or, or something like that where, you know, completely different context, but where with the right face and the right actor, you can get so much poetry out of something so simple mm. uh, where the camera is not doing anything but recording the moment. Yeah, moments like that you kind of realize for all the camera pyrotechnics you can do and the magical sunsets and vistas and crowd scenes, yeah. ultimately nothing beats a human face. Singing in the Rain. Can we talk Singing in the Rain? What does that film mean to you as a person? Does it mean anything to you? Wait, wait, what? It doesn't mean anything? It doesn't mean anything. Is it? Yeah, what is... No, what I've never it? seen it. Yeah, I've never, <laughs> never heard of this singing in the rain business. What does um, the film mean to you? Uh, well, it's, it's one of the greatest films ever made. It's, it's, um, it's the most joyous movie ever made, you know. I think there was something to the idea of someone having a reaction of sort of sadness and regret and pain uh, to the most joyous movie mm -hmm. ever made. Um, that's the irony of Sting in the Rain. It's the most joyous movie ever made, the most joyful experience watching a movie that you can have, mm -hmm. and yet it alludes to, gestures to, 
what was essentially a tragedy for so many people. Um, I mean, people died, as people took their own lives as a result of uh, this transition to sound. The character that Gene Kelly's, you know, Don Lockwood is based on, John Gilbert, dr basically drank himself to death. Um, these were, uh, it was, it was, there was a brutality and a cruelty to the sort of real story. And mm -hmm. Sing in the Rain, in some ways, it exemplifies that sort of Hollywood ability to turn something like that into, into, into lightness and into hope. It somehow does it without lying. That's the magic of it. It somehow does it in a way that feels honest and truthful and so beautiful. So it's kind of Hollywood at its best, I would say. It's, yeah. it's, 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 uh, it's one of those rare moments where every aspect of the Hollywood thing, equation, just works perfectly. Um, so, you know, it felt like, you know, kind of using that as a starting point, looking back at the sort of darker side of what led to Singing in the Rain, mm -hmm. uh, and the ways in which Singing in the Rain, just sort of the backstory of it, interweaves with, you know, this period, you know, it's sort of, I think a lot of people don't even realize that the songs in Singing in the Rain weren't written for that movie. They were written for earlier movies or earlier uh, productions in this era. They were all 20s songs. It was a 20s song catalog. That's how Singing in the Rain came to be. They, they, they had a bunch of 20s songs that they wanted to put in a movie, so they decided, oh, okay, what should we do? Well, let's set a movie in the 20s. What was going on in the 20s? Oh, you know, we'll do, we'll do silent to sound. That's it. That's how Singing in the Rain came to be. It was that sort of mercenary, and out of it you get genius. Again, that's Hollywood. That's like the weird sort of paradox of, of, of Hollywood. It's commerce and art, and it comes together, and there's something somehow magical that comes out maybe 1% of the time. You know, and so, um, yeah, to kind of uh, both doff the hat to it, but also try to sort of dig under the rubble of what sort of lies beneath it. Uh, and then build up to it in such a way where, again, you know, it just sort of presented itself to me as a, an interesting idea if someone stumbled into a theater after not mm -hmm. having been in a theater for a while and just happens to see this movie, if they had been through that. Yeah. The emotions that that would bring up uh, for them uh, while surrounded by an audience of delighted spectators having the time of their lives, you know, it's... it's uh, and yet, you know, as, as sort of happens to Manny during the course of that scene, you, you can't help but be sort of caught in the spell yourself. Yeah. So it's, it's again, the trying to end on a sort of final statement of some kind about the paradox of it, that it's the, that it's the pain and the, the joy, and that, that uh, movies somehow have a way of hiding that, expressing that, building from that, being you know, unable to exist without it, yeah. milking our pain to turn into <laughs> pleasure. You know, there's just a whole thing about it that you can either celebrate or condemn, maybe both. That's where that's where the movie lands for me. Amazing. Thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> oh man. And thank you honestly for this film. I just had oh, thank you. the best time. Can't wait to see it again, to be honest. Oh yeah. thanks. Thanks. So Great kind to chat to you. Thanks nice so chatting. Much
from the score to Babylon. That's Justin Horwitz's version of Singing in the Rain, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Damien Chazelle and his composer. My huge, huge thanks to Damien and Justin for taking the time to talk to me. Babylon is on general release now. It is in the cinema. Go and see it. Just go in there and be prepared to be entertained and just get on that cinematic flying carpet and go and have fun. It is a mind-blowing cinematic experience. The boys have spoken to me before and you can hear those conversations by heading to edithbowman.com along with every other episode of the podcast. Follow us on social channels. We are at Soundtracking UK and we do also have a YouTube channel to subscribe to. In fact, I will get Damien's interview up there quick smart. Next up, this is good timing and we did the interview before the film got, I mean, an abundance of nominations for everything. The film is The Banshees of Inisherin, and the man you're going to hear from is the fantastic composer Carter Borwell. Coming up next on Soundtracking, I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs>